0: Welcome to the Fireside Podcast, where our mission is to better engage culture, to equip the church, and to glorify God. I'm Houston. I'm Clayton.
1: And I'm Jeremiah.
0: All right, and we're here today to talk about church history. Um, Specifically, we're going to talk about the first, say, 50, 60 years of the church, and how that relates to us today, and why that story is important. So first of all, before we get going, I think we should talk about what is church history. You know, obviously we talk about this kind of thing a lot in the church, and what are we talking about
2: when we're talking about church history? So I, I came at this topic with the idea of um, the stories that we hold to when we're talking about church history. Um, of course, that includes the Bible, because those are books you know that we've held to. But also just the other, uh, the apocryphal uh, writings that we, that the church has also held on to, but doesn't necessarily uh, see as inspired like the other books. So, uh, you know, part of church history is how do we interact with the apocrypha?
0: Yeah, that's a a difficult question, I think, for the church to deal with today. I know I've heard from a lot of people things like, you know, the Catholic Church has these extra books in their Bible, right? And I always say, yeah, but do you understand what those books are? Which we're not going to get into all of that today, but the idea is that these are very taboo topics of how do we deal with stories that involve our tradition that aren't from the Bible specifically, right? That's a very, I think, difficult thing for us to deal with as a church is to what extent do we lend value to things that aren't just the Bible?
1: Yeah, so I think it is actually interesting to talk about that a little bit about, you know, why this is such a controversial thing to talk about these extra biblical sources, um, specifically the Apocrypha, because they were meant to fill in this gap of time that is, you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. Um, So that I think that says something a little bit about just our culture in general, like our worldview on wanting to. wanting to control things, wanting to know more. I mean, we talked about this in a previous podcast about um, absolute truth and just our desire to just know everything. Um, And I think this is potentially an attempt to to do that. This is just my thoughts, so take them with a grain of salt. But, uh, you know, somebody felt that these were valued and that they needed to be included within our tradition as a church, and I think that they are important to look over because of that. Uh, If somebody finds value in something, we should also attempt to see where they found the value in it.
0: Jeremiah, that you are hitting a really good point here about the intertestamental period and the value that these books add. And I think that the thing that the church does typically is we have a bad tendency of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. There's a lot of good stuff in the Apocrypha, which, again, the the subject's not about the Apocrypha, but extra-biblical Sources in general. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in the apocrypha, like the Maccabees tell us a, a good history of uh, Jerusalem and Israel through returning from exile until Jesus shows up. And then this 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 is valuable things. This is valuable stuff for us. But we also get in the apocrypha things like, um, we also get. We also get, with the Apocrypha, extra-biblical books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, these books that the church has never held as valuable. But today, we look back and we say, there's the Bible, and there are these things that are not the Bible, and there are things that aren't the Bible that are bad, and so maybe all things that aren't the Bible are bad. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: I mean, even more recently, we have the Desi Scrolls um, that were found to... To really just give more of a support for what Scripture is proclaiming,
0: yeah. So obviously these things have value, and we we see that they have value, but we have to be wise when we look at these extra biblical sources and determine do they add value to our beliefs or do they detract from it? Right. Um, and so again, you know those those uh So again, those Gnostic gospels the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, you know, those those things, um, the, the church very early on decided did not add value. And so we today have to be careful that we don't let them add more than they should.
2: So I think that brings us to another aspect of church history, which is the teachings of the fathers, the patristics, and how we get to see how they encountered these uh, these pseudepigraphical, pseudepigraphical. pseudepigraphical works.
0: Which pseudepigraphical, uh, for those who don't know, means false writing, basically. Um, the idea is the claimed author in the book is not the true author. So for the Gospel of Thomas, it, it was not written by Thomas. The Gospel of Peter was not written by Peter. Often they're written 100, 200 years removed. Um, and so that, that's why I call them.
1: Pseudepigraphical.
0: Pseudepigraphical. Oh, no. No, so that's why we call them pseudepigraphical. So then, so we've already touched on this a little bit, but this plays directly into why we believe church history is important. Because when we look at church history, we see how the church interacted with these stories and we can better know how to in- interact with them ourselves and beyond that we see how people have held the faith for thousands of years before us 2000 years before us and that they've walked you know that they've walked these paths before we even came along and so we have so much that we can learn from them there's a lot of value in studying church history because it shows us the directions that the early church went on different topics on how to interact with certain books, how to interact with certain people, how to interact with certain situations, so on and so forth. It shows us the kind of the foundational principles of what it means to be the church. If we see how those who were one generation removed from Christ, or those who were the disciples of the disciples are interacting with each other and are being the church, there we have so much to learn from that because you know they're the first people to walk this walk without Christ present. Right? And so how are they learning how to do things? How are they learning how to be the church? And so that's, that's the kind of things we want to touch on today.
1: So Houston, you were talking about uh, the importance of church history and how we're trying to get back to these foundational principles. Um, And this is to essentially restore something that, um, that that has value in the past uh, and bringing it back into, you know, to our church today. Um, And so that's, that's, kind of in a roundabout way how uh, the Restoration Movement works, which, which we're all products of that, uh, Houston, Clayton, and I. Uh, Clayton, uh, we would probably consider him more of a Restoration syncretist.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, he's not like... He's throwing me under the bus. Yeah, he's not like Buddhist and Restoration Movement or right. something like
1: that. I mean, or, you know, Restoration Eastern Catholic. I, don't, I like that better. You, however you yeah. want to put it, yeah. There you go. <laughs> but we're all in a way some somewhat of a, of syncretists, I yeah. guess you could say. I mean, we, we have all of these ideal, uh, uh, we have all of these ideologies that we, we pull from other um, areas of religion um, that can help just in our, in our faith walk in general, not, not necessarily that we are um, valuing those over the truths of the Bible, but at least we're we're interacting with other things. And like we were talking about earlier, you know, like these extra biblical resources.
2: Um, I mean, we're true millennials is what you're really saying. Yeah. 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 We we are products
1: of a postmodern world.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And the the products of the postmodern world come back to the pre-modern world and say, Hey, this is all right. Um, but yeah, Je- Jeremiah, I think what you're touching on is that, you know we're we're joking about clayton being a, a church syncretist and ultimately to some degree we all need to be church syncretists mm-hmm. right that's that's what we're saying is the value of looking back at the early church is that we acknowledge that those we acknowledge that all faith traditions first of all come from an original faith tradition in in the book of acts right we see that there is a model of how the church acts and behaves and so on and so forth and that this is a this is a, an ideological thing for us to go back to not in the sense that you know the early church was perfect but that they did get unity that's something that that they did fairly well on right and so when we look at the catholic tradition or the eastern orthodox tradition or the refer excuse me or the restoration movement. You, know, you could say reformation too. Reformation. Yeah. And all these <laughs> things. Sure. Yeah. When we look at all these things, we see that there is value in reaching across the the quote unquote party lines because we are all brothers of the same tradition. And so we have to go back and reclaim that fraternity, right? We have to reclaim this brotherhood with our, our fellow believers who just have different faith traditions than us. And so you know, we were talking earlier that it's kind of dangerous to go back to the early church and say this is the perfect model of how the church should be because the early church had their problems for sure. I mean, whew, rampant, rampant issues in the early church, just the same as there are rampant issues in the church today. You know, we're we're going to acknowledge that, but they did get the unity thing pretty well. And that's that's what we care about is unity in the body. And so. That's, that's why we're going back to look at the early church for, and from a restoration standpoint. Not in that we are restoring the early church, but we are restoring the unity of the early church. Mm-hmm.
1: Which also something to address in, in the early church as well that's important is, is the community aspect of it all as well. Because while we're in community, that's that's when we can struggle with these things. We can uh, you know, look to these extra-biblical sources. We can look to the Bible in general and just see together like how... How do these interact with each other? How, how should we be approaching these things? I mean, how did, how did these things even become canonized? Like, are we, how are we determining that these are, yeah, how are we, how are we determining that these things are true and valuable?
0: Yeah. I I always think it's interesting that we kind of have this idea, especially in America and especially we're here in the Bible about, there's this whole notion that if you don't like the teachings of this church, you go to the church down the street and try them. And if you don't like, you know, what the pastor said at the pulpit, you go to the next church. And if you don't like how they do church discipline here, and it's a very consumer church, uh, we we see that. It's just rampant where we're at. Consumer church is big. But what I always think is just really just missing the mark is that the church is, in all reality, the only safe place to have disagreements.
2: I think we're seeing that definitely in the culture today, that people's disagreements are really what start fights and drastic, intense fights. You know, uh, Jordan Peterson, you know, he has essentially became famous through YouTube just because he stood up for something. And, you know, he's trying to get this idea across of, no, we need to be able to talk and we need to be able to listen to one another. And if we can't listen to one another, then we can't then we can't grow together.
0: yeah I, I think that's a very unfortunate side effect of where we're at today is that we have mistaken agreement with unity, and that's what the church has never intended, I think, and it's it's created a toxic environment for good conversation. We were reading this article that Jeremiah linked us a while ago about why millennial Christians are flocking to podcasts because this is the one safe place to talk about our quote-unquote controversial ideas and really shouldn't be that way you know we're obviously we're sitting here in a podcast talking about this but (laughs) it shouldn't be that we have to hide what we believe from the rest of the church the church should be the safe place to like Jordan Peterson is saying have these conversations like things should not be off limits because someone disagrees with them We should all the more press to talk through these issues so that at least we can come to a point of respect and understanding, even if we are still at disagreement. Hmm. I think about what Paul says. I, I believe it's in Romans 15. He says, at the end of the day, if you have opinions that are going to be disruptive to the unity of the church, keep them to yourself. But I think that kind of fights my argument, doesn't it? Oh, okay. No, no, no. But. I think the key point there is if it's disruptive to the unity of the church. Paul in the previous chapter talks about if one person thinks something is a sin, the other person has to respect that, right? So it's, it's a culture of respect. It's a culture of understanding. It's a culture of communication and it's ultimately not a culture of perfect agreement and everything, but, but it is a safe place to disagree, I and Again, that's the point that I want to come back to, is the church should be the safe place to disagree. This should be the safe place for conversations.
1: And if anything, Jesus teaches us that the pulpit's not there to protect people. Mm. Not just Jesus, but really anyone, any of his followers that have preached before a council or before
0: a group of people. Yeah, I think about Peter in the, the, the Pentecost sermon. Mm-hmm. He said, this Jesus whom you've crucified has become lo- both Lord and Christ. That, that is incendiary language, right? You killed this man, and come to find out he's Lord and Christ. And, and so that's, I mean, I think people use that as an excuse to be incendiary without value, which is not okay, obviously. Um, and again, it's not what we're talking about today. But we have to be okay to have tough conversations in the church. How are we going to link this? We kind of got off on the tangent. Well, we
1: started talking about Acts, so... Yeah. Was there something you wanted to jump in on? No. Okay.
0: That was good, though. It was good. So, speaking of Peter and preaching at Pentecost, um, obviously our topic today is about church history, and so we want to maybe reel it back in a little bit. Um to church history. But uh, what we want to do is take kind of a quick look through the book of Acts to kind of establish the foundation, if you would, of church history before we move on any further and talk about these extra biblical sources. So we've been talking about why we think it's important to study church history, um, why it's important to have these dialogues, and to be Willing to to have these conversations, um, and so what we want to do now is is kind of jump into the first few years of the church, and really establish kind of a framework for how where kind of establish a framework for where the rest of the church is moving for the next two thousand years. So first thing we're going to do is look at the book of Acts, um, which is of course the Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. But it is the initial acts of the church.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to touch on Acts one as the beginning of the church, uh, because this is where Jesus ascends into heaven, and says that he will be sending his spirit upon us, um, and that's that's what guides the church at that point. Once once you know the spirit is received um, in Acts chapter two, during Pentecost, uh, that's when you know every tribe, tongue, people, and nation come together and are able to hear what is being said in their own languages, their own dialect even. Uh, and, and it's all because of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the one unifying factor that, that binds us all together to begin the church. So yeah, let's read from, uh, from Acts 1, uh, 1 16 to 11, uh, which is the portion of, on the Ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you, into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord.
0: <laughs> Praise be to God. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I, was waiting, for I was waiting for you to say it too. Synchrist. So this is... Oh, sorry. i you going to say something. I just said syncretist. Uh, uh, so so this is important because I, this verse, Acts 1-8, is, is kind of the... Uh, playbook of the church right you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and and the context there is that the apostles are in Jerusalem and so when he says they're going to be his witnesses and he's they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem it means they're his witnesses in their hometown in their you know own neighborhood so to speak and then in Judea and Samaria reference their neighboring neighborhoods and then all the ends of the earth obviously refers to all the ends of the earth and so the idea here is that the church spreads from home to the neighbors to the world and that's kind of the model of the church growth and spread and and you know that's that's kind of the if you would second commission from christ you know the first is going to all the earth baptizing them in the name of the father son the holy spirit making disciples of all nations right Mm -hmm. butchered that but just
1: like paul proclaims in romans that it's not just to the Jews but the Gentiles as well, it's to everybody
0: it's it's an inclusive yeah exactly yeah exactly so so Jesus lays out here that the goal of the church is to spread throughout the world, and so, when does that happen first in Jerusalem
3: at Pentecost
0: So, the day of Pentecost is a Jewish holiday commemorating fifty days. After the second day of Passover and specifically the relevance this has for us is that this is the day when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and they they start to move out and start to become the church. And Peter preaches the first sermon uh, of the gospel in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost to the, to the Jewish people who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this festival.
3: Which I don't believe is coincidental. At all, this was the time where everybody gathered together to celebrate the giving of the law, yeah, yeah, so there's a ton of people there uh, at this moment, uh, from every
0: tribe, so what Peter does it here is he uses the Old Testament scripture to connect the story of the Jewish audience to Christ and what he had done for them, so he uses he does this by referencing a couple of different Old Testament passages, specifically Joel 2.28, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He's basically laying out a framework to connect the story of the Jewish people to Christ and what he had done for them. This is, again, what we're trying to do with our church history is when we reconnect with our past, we have an opportunity to engage in our story more fully. And so the important thing about Pentecost, for our purposes, is this passage at the end, chapter 2, verse 42, says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so, this is what we're trying to talk about when we say we want to look back at church history and restore certain elements of the early church. This is what we want to restore that unity and that love of all the believers. We want our congregations and our meetings together to reflect this early church congregation when they said no one is going to go without among us. We are going to support each other and love each other and we're going to show the world what good community and good love means. And so when we talk about church history, what we want to do is we want to draw back to our roots and to our story so we can better exemplify this community and this love with each other. And we want to embody the unity of Christ for the world. And
3: we hit Acts four. Yeah, and so this is wrapped up in Acts four thirty
1: two as well. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so here again we see this unity aspect of the of the church, uh, the the community that's being built. Nothing is is your own We I mean, we all share everything we're
3: all of one heart and uh one accord essentially
2: uh, yeah yeah so unfortunately the very next chapter is when things start to go south yeah you know acts five we have two believers uh ananias and sapphira who lie um about about that very thing, about having things in common, that they, they lied about selling their goods um, for their own uh, benefit. And and just from that, so we're starting to see these disagreements starting to pop up every now and then. We see, what is it, chapter 6, the widows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the widows, certain widows aren't being fed, and it's brought to the attention of the apostles, and so they assign they assign deacons over that situation to help, uh, you know, alleviate the injustice there. And, And to go further, we go through, as they start to spread out into Samaria and the Judean countryside and the rest of the world, we see that they're encountering people who are disagreeing with them that are pushing back on their their beliefs and their their systems that they've put in place like Simon the magician where Peter confronts this person who wants to know more about Jesus but does so in the wrong way um and so this this these types of occurrences these types of uh problems that they're having needs to be addressed. And so that brings us all the way into chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, where the believers are saying, there's a lot of issues going on and we need to have a council to address these issues.
0: So I've got that scripture pulled up. That's Acts 15, verse 1 says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses you cannot be saved this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question the churches the church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria they told how the gentiles had been converted This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So skipping down to chapter 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Perfect. So-
2: We've just seen that the church, in order to combat, you know, disagreements, they come together to unify around certain practices. Mm -hmm. And what we see here in this very chapter is that what do they do? They write letters to the other churches in the areas telling them, you know, we have decided these things and this these letters we will see begin to be our history as well we have the epistles of paul epistles of paul, uh, john and and peter and the rest of these these books that these men write and so these these works of these men become our foundation to our to our faith
0: I think something significant in this passage is that the council decided to unify us around what we agree on instead of on what we disagree on. And so that seems, I think that seems like an obvious thing. Of course you unify on that. But I think so often in the church today, we talk so much about, are you a premillennial dispensationalist? Are you an omelette? Blah, blah, blah. You know, what, what are you? And it's like when the Jerusalem council address this issue of division in the church they said we don't believe that this is a tenant of the church this this is what we believe is a tenant of the church you know we don't eat food sacrificed to idols and so on and so forth and so they rallied themselves around what they they did hold together
2: so looking back on
0: these stories
2: i think we can see a pattern starting to develop In regards to how disagreements are actually what brings about a truer sense of our faith. That through disagreements and talking through them, we actually become more closer to the truth of who Christ is and who who we're called to be as well because of Him. And we're going to skip a few hundred years here, but the first council, Council of Nicaea, we we see that all these disagreements are being brought forth at this council and they're they're here to settle disputes and to find out what is it exactly that we hold to as Christians and so so what's interesting about this first council of nicaea is that the emperor constantine has just been converted to to become a Christian, and he wants to uh make Christianity, which has been illegal, now acceptable in the Roman Empire but in order to do that, he wants the leaders of the church to get together and decide, hey, this is what Christianity is, define some things let's set down some uh you know what would become creeds, and therefore Christianity can now become something more established within the Roman Empire.
3: And so the Christian leaders
2: get together and they begin to debate and talk and discuss, what exactly do we hold to? And through these disagreements and these heresies that spring up, they're able to combat them. So I think it would be cool to go over the Nicene Creed, the the, the creed that comes out of this discussion and fine-tuning of the Christian faith. Do we have that pulled up?
0: Yeah, i got it right here. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again in in accordance with the Scripture. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen.
3: Amen. Yeah, and as a worship minister, I like that creed because of uh, the song I believe. So, like, we're, yeah. we're trying to bring that back into the church, which is really cool to see.
0: Yeah, and this and us engaging with the creed is a perfect example of of everything that we're talking about today. Us looking back throughout church history and engaging with the early church and living in solidarity with them and solidarity with each other. You know, this creed is a perfect example of how we can reach across the the quote unquote aisles to the Catholic Church to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And we can all draw back to this creed and say, yeah, amen.
2: So part of this council was not just interacting with certain beliefs and heresies, but about these books that had been previously written by these letters by the apostles um, and and others. So another thing that this council was about was interacting with the writings of the apostles. Who wrote down their pastoral work and sent them off to the churches? But there is a lot of other things that didn't get into this canon. And we sort of touched on this at the very beginning about these pseudepigraphical works. And those include like the different gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, even, um, Acts of uh, Peter. So these, what we now call pseudepigraphical writings, were not at the time deemed as such. They weren't, they were considered possibly inspired by a lot of people. But, I mean, that's why they brought them to them to discuss. So, like, they brought all these different works to the council in order to decide, is this actual scripture?
3: So,
0: Yeah. Some people thought that they might be scripture. That tradition tells us that the general consensus of the church was that we landed on what we now define as scripture very early on. There was a a heretical teacher named Marcion who was a big proponent of throwing out the entirety of the Old Testament and really throwing out most of what we now consider the New Testament holding on to, like, just Luke and Acts. Tradition tells us that he was a big anti-Semite. And so he wanted to throw out everything Jewish about our faith. And the early church stood against that very, very strongly in saying, no, these things are inherent and integral to our faith. And even these other books that you're trying to throw out in our, you know, they didn't have the New Testament yet, but these new writings that you're trying to throw out are still valuable, so yeah the the Council of Nicaea cemented the canon, but it was largely held by the church for long before that
2: so one of these people that were participants at this council was a man named Eusebius, and Eusebius was actually one of the right hand men or right hand men of Constantine and Eusebius is considered uh by many uh, different tradi- uh, Christian traditions to be one of the most important historians of the church because he actually gathered a lot of these works that were previously written, you know, between uh the 1st century and then to the thir- uh, you know, beginning of 300s. And so he he compiled all of these lists together, and he wrote stories and summarized uh, essentially what was what was being talked about, what what stories were the early church fathers writing about and holding on to. And in one of his books that he uh, titles the uh, Ecclesiastical History, you know, the Church History, he he walks through some of the uh, Acts of Peter, which is which is a pseudoprographical work, and Eusebius interacts with those works. And so, I think we can see that these early church fathers were struggling with these pseudoprographical works because there was something of valuable in them, even if they weren't going to be, or weren't considered canon even then, but that they were still held on to through the various stories that were presented in them, because they they you know they had some history or they had some value.
1: So essentially, every story has value, right? I think that's kind of kind of where we're going with all of this is that uh, every story has value. I mean, all each one of us individually is inherently valuable, and I don't think that that's really talked about as much as it should be. Um, I mean, everybody needs to know that they are valuable. <laughs> that's that's a that's just the truth, um, but because we are inherently valuable, and because our stories have value to them, we need to constantly tell people about our story. Uh, we constantly need to uh, take the stories of old, like we're like we're talking about, and put ourselves in that story. Uh, we we talked about this on past episodes as well. I mean we we want to be so engulfed in the story of Christ that uh, we become
3: that story.
2: I think that was well put,
3: yeah, yeah,
0: so if we could encourage you guys to walk away from this with with one thing, it's that, like Jeremiah was saying these these stories have value for our lives today. Jeremiah coined this phrase, but I think it's pretty good. We need to know where we came from so that we can know where we're going um and and even beyond that, we need to know where we came from so that we can know who we are and so when we gauge and engage so when we engage in these stories when we read eusebius's works and we see you know what he writes about peter and, and the other apostles we have a chance to not only better understand what the church is and what we're supposed to do as a church we have a better chance to understand our own identity in the church and we get to better know our story, not just the church's story, but our story, and what that makes us.
3: Do you want to talk about uh this new initiative with the Fireside Community?
0: Oh yeah, this is all the Fireside stuff we've been talking about.
3: <laughs> this is new stuff to
0: me. Okay. So you <laughs> buckle in. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jeremiah. We started a YouTube channel called Fireside Community, and what we want to start doing is. To start creating more content than just the podcast. Um, we have a sorry if I'm wrong. We have a strong conviction that stories are relevant and integral to our lives, not just as believers, but as humans. And so what we want to do is we want to take this emphasis and this idea and really apply it across the board. And so some things that we're hoping to do is to engage some topics that are maybe difficult for the average person to get into um, and then also engage some then also engage our hearts in a way that maybe the church isn't doing for you on Sunday mornings and so our whole purpose is I mean our our ultimate goal is to um, to, to better
1: better the church I mean to, yeah to help
3: edify the church yeah, yeah. to help encourage the church I think that's what yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so I mean that would be not that it's not what you're being fulfilled on Sunday morning but like these are resources that that would uh,
0: help encourage the church yeah yeah um so the whole point of this extra so the whole point of this fireside community thing is that we want to fulfill our mission completely you know again our mission is to better engage culture and so we want to talk about how story engages culture, how to engage the story of our culture. You know, we want to talk about how to be a more relevant church. Um, We want to equip the church. And so we want to look at different periods in church history like we've done today and kind of boil it down into a fireside story that is much more manageable, much more processable. Tangible. What? Tangible. Tangible, yes, much more tangible so that we can equip the church to like we're talking today better know our history. We're going to talk about some different theological concepts and kind of boil them down into simpler terms so that we can help the church better engage theology. Um and ultimately we're hoping that all of these things are edifying to the church and encouraging and and encouraging. And so what we're going to continue to do is make the podcast, of course, but just expect some more content coming on the YouTube channel, some different things from the just normal fireside podcast, some additional things, some videos.
1: Yeah, so what's exciting about this for me is that each one of us that's a part of this podcast has their own uh their own gift for the kingdom, their own uh thing that, that God has gifted them to do to to help better the kingdom. And so through this we're able to to use our gifts and uh, our own ministry emphasis emphasis emphasize emphasis, emphasis emphasis okay yeah. anyway <laughs> we can we can better use you know what we've learned in our own ministry context to to help the church and their different ministry contexts. So, you know like I'm I'm a worship minister and so something I'd like to do through this is to do something along the lines of, like songs by the fireside so we get local artists in that uh, have recorded some some music some you know Christian artists and have them explain their song, have them perform a song. Um, I think that would be just really, really cool to hear, and maybe even give you something that you could potentially use in your church um, at some point. Oh, and also with like with the creative arts aspect of things as well, being able to, you know, create short videos of like testimonies or uh, something that describes a a topic in the Bible that you could use in your church setting as well. So I mean, we're, we're trying to develop more resources for for the church is what I'm essentially saying.
0: It, and ultimately, it all boils back to the first part of our mission, to better engage culture. You know, obviously, the, the internet, YouTube, social media, these, these are where culture in our part of the world is happening. And so we want to be relevant in this context. In, in the context of YouTube and social media and so on and so forth. And so what we want to do is we want to put things, and I like what Jeremiah said, in a tangible format and put it out where the culture is because we hope to see the, the kingdom growing in the world. And so we're going to do that by engaging the culture
2: in this way. Would it be fair to say that the reason, further reason why we created this Fireside community was so that we can actually get better feedback from any listeners that are, um, you know, coming upon our videos, but we're not really answering the questions they have. And yeah. so these, this, this is a way to better communicate with our listeners and to better serve them.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. Again, we, we set out when we first started this. That we didn't want to just make a podcast for the sake of making a podcast. We didn't want to just do something because we wanted to do it. We wanted to bring value to the table, and we wanted to contribute to people's lives and to the kingdom. And so that's definitely a big part of it. Is that we want to have the opportunity to hear what people want to hear. You know, we want to be relevant not just to culture in general, but to the listeners. We want to say, "Hey, are you what are you struggling with? You know, what can we talk about? You know, how how can we possibly help?" And so that I think that's a good point is that as we reach out on these different mediums, we're going to have more of an opportunity to communicate with our listeners and our audience to to better meet their needs.
3: So what are we talking about next week? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jeremiah. It's a good question, Jeremiah. You're always the one to uh, reel us back in and pose the hard questions. Well, you know, I do what I can. You do what you can. So uh, I'm really glad that we talked about what we talked about today because we a big thing that's on my heart is kind of starting from the ground up and establishing a biblical worldview in a context for the rest of our podcasts and the rest of our content in general and so we talked a little bit today about the assembling of scripture and you know why we think that some books are scripture why some aren't so on and so forth and so what we want to do not next week but the week after is we're going to start talking about can we Rely on the Bible. Can we believe what the Bible has to say? And we're going to talk about why we think that we can, and more importantly, what that means for us. What is a biblical worldview? How does the Bible affect our day to day? And for our purposes, how does the Bible affect our story? So join us in two weeks for that fireside podcast about the Bible and our story. And until then, Keep your eyes out for some additional content um, as we have the ability to put it up. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Fireside Podcast. We'll see you next time.